Somebody in France, somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on maps. There are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders, and this has caused a significant amount of conflict. There are a lot of people who need safety. It is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away. What we're seeing is a number of people that remain in a state of limbo. And when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees... I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 855 AM, 3CR. Good morning and welcome to Refugee Radio with uh, Zacharias Schumer. Um, this morning, uh, well, firstly, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the uh, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the uh, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR is broad- broadcast, and pay my respect to their elders, uh, to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Um, this week, I um, was interested in talking about an issue that I've seen I've seen discussed quite a lot in the media in like recent months: uh, climate refugees. Uh, I read an article in the Guardian written by Jeff Sparrow uh, a few months ago, titled "Australia's Orwellian Anti-Refugee System Hints at What's to Come for Climate Refugees." in which he suggests that the the template of the future in terms of Australia's policy towards the massive number of people who might be displaced by climate events is essentially being set by the refugee policies of today. Uh, in recent years, there's been a large, you know, there's been numerous reports that have suggested a wide variety of statistics in terms of the numbers of people who might be displaced by climate events in the coming decades. I think some of the estimates range as high as 1 to 1.5 billion by the middle of this century. Some are around 100 million mark. And uh, another sort of really significant part of this debate is that under international law, as it currently stands, refugees... um, people displaced by climate wouldn't fit under the legal definition of a refugee, being that there's no evidence that they're being, you know, uh, specifically targeted or persecuted based on their ethnicity, race, religion, etc. The persecutor is, in essence, the climate, and therefore they wouldn't be eligible for refugee status um, under international law. So it's a very fraught and uh, difficult topic, to think about and like how it's going to unfold in the years to come. And 
So to, um, you know, I'm definitely no expert. <laughs> so to help make sense of it, I met with Dr. Celia McMichael, a senior lecturer from the School of Geography at Uni Melbourne, um, who primarily focuses in her research on climate-related migration and displacement. Um, yeah, and I had a sort of brief talk to her about some of the issues in the field of climate migration. So let's have a listen to part one of the interview. I thought we could start by historically contextualising the issue of climate refugees. Um, when did the term climate refugees first emerge as a part of the discourse around climate change and refugee politics? Um, around the mid-1980s, the term environmental migrants and environmental refugees um, started to be used um, in response to... Um, research demonstrating that things such as floods, droughts, loss of ecosystem services were leading to migration and mobility of people and that got picked up in some of the early intergovernmental pa panel on climate change reports in the 1990s and onwards. So over the last few decades that uh, field has really emerged where there's this ongoing concern that climate change impacts are going to lead to migration, mobility, displacement of people and populations. But there's certainly been a shift away from the term environmental refugees that's now considered to be really problematic, um, or climate refugees, because uh, refugee is a very specific legal term. It means someone who crosses an international border because of fear of persecution. Uh, in the case of environmental migrants or so-called environmental refugees or climate refugees, they're not experiencing persecution per se. They're experiencing climate risks and vulnerabilities that might contribute to migration decisions. So in a legal sense, that certainly doesn't um, meet the criteria for a refugee. So it's used more in media reports, um, kind of online sources, everyday language, um, but it's considered quite problematic. Uh, are there many people that are advocating for people displaced by climate change to be brought in under that umbrella of, of refugee under international law? Uh, I'd say no. Um, there's not a huge push to have a, a legal definition of an environmental refugee or a climate refugee, in part because climate change risks are going to be um, drivers that amplify uh, migration the reasons that people migrate. So if you have, say, sea level rise or a drought, um, that is a driver of mobility decisions, but it's always going to operate alongside other social, economic and political things that shape migration decisions. So it's quite hard to disentangle climate as a sole driver of any migration decision. So that would create a real challenge for developing a legal category of an environmental refugee or a climate refugee. Having said that, there's certainly very widespread consensus that climate risks are going to increase the scale of um, human mobility that we see uh, both now and into the future. I think one of the other arguments I've heard about against like labelling climate migrants as climate refugees is about the fact that uh, a lot of the migration flows from climate change will be within countries, not across borders. Yeah, that's another really good point, that legally, you know, a refugee is someone that crosses an international border because of fear of persecution, right? So with a climate refugee, if you take that legal definition, it 
raises this anxiety about you know floods of people being displaced across borders because of climate risk but the reality as you say is that the overwhelming majority of climate related migration and mobility will be internal so you can imagine for example a context of a drought where um, climate you know global anthropogenic climate change is going to reduce precipitation increase warming it might amplify drought risk and in sites of drought risk people might move um, say seasonally to have to look for alternative ways to diversify their livelihoods if you you know you're struggling to produce enough money and income and resources based on agriculture in a drought context but that's not going to be a movement necessarily across a border it might be to an urban area or a capital city um, for the short term and then people would return so the expectation is the overwhelming majority of climate related mobility um, at least this century would be within countries I've seen a wide range of figures quoted in the media yeah. about the um, number of people that are potentially going to be displaced by 2050. I think I've seen up to 1.5 billion quoted at one point and then mm. as low as 200 million. Um, where does the debate currently stand around calculating the number of climate refugees and what are the difficulties in, in doing something like that? Okay, um, so you're right that there are hugely varying estimates about the scale and quantification of the number of people who will be displaced by climate risks into the future. So it's very common to read estimates of hundreds of millions of people by mid-century that might be displaced, but estimates have gone as high as a billion or more and as low as tens of millions. Is this, the, the challenge is trying to... The, define what is going to displace people um, and then having data sets to, to actually look at those drivers and try and make an estimation of how many people will be affected by those drivers. So if you take, just for example, sea level rise, um, out to the end of this century it's expected that we might see 1 to 1.1 metres of sea level rise on current emission trajectories. So it's possible to look at a data set of elevation of the world and where populations reside and try and give a rough estimation of how many people are living in those low elevation zones. Um, and those estimates vary, you know, hundreds of millions, 600 million, 200 million, depending on the data set that you use. But it's very difficult to create a robust um, number which can account for things like people's possibility to adapt, to build seawalls, to raise the height of homes, to live in sites of flood risk um, and perhaps move and then return. So all of these numbers are incredibly rubbery. I think the state of the debate is that it's going to be in the order of tens, if not hundreds of millions. Very difficult to give an accurate number. Um, but certainly an, an increase in um, migration flows is to be expected and, and that there is pretty high confidence around. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. 
The campaign to protect country is led by Japwarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japwarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. You're listening to Refugee Radio on 3CR. This morning we're talking with Dr Celia McMichael, a senior lecturer from the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne. We're talking about climate migration, climate refugees, and the issue of people being displaced over the next few decades by climate and where things stand in terms of international law, in terms of government policies around border policing, um, and research around adaptation. So let's listen to part two. A lot of your research focuses on low-lying islands in the Pacific with people living in sites of vulnerability to sea level rise and coastal changes. Uh, would you be able to discuss some of your recent research and findings? Yeah, so um, I've been working in quite a specific um, bunch of places in the Pacific Islands region, so predominantly in Fiji, which is one of the first countries in the world to, to develop planned relocation guidelines. Um, so they in Fiji, the government has worked with local research organisations to try and identify low-lying coastal settlements that are at risk of sea level rise, coastal flooding, erosion, salinisation of um, soils and um, farmland, and that might potentially need to be relocated. So there are a few places. One is a village called um, Vunidongoloa, which is a village of about um, 30 households. And over the last 10, 15 years, they have, they've had a few seawalls that have, have been broken and damaged. They've tried to prevent coastal erosion by planting mangroves um, to kind of stabilise the, the coastal area. But they just have faced ongoing challenges with king tides, um, you know, with flooding at high tide. So they approached the provincial council and the government and asked for support to relocate. So this is a community-led initiative with the input of government. Um, and in 2014, that entire village relocated about two kilometres up the hill um, to a new site um, with new houses, with fish ponds, with new farmland, so that they have a kind of new livelihood options um, to rebuild a future in this new site. So it's been quite an effective relocation. Um, I couldn't say uh, unequivocally that that relocation was entirely due to climate risk because there's a lot of reasons that coasts, coastlines change. But sea level rise is certainly part of the picture and villages from Vunidongoloa speak of their relocation as a climate relocation. So that's become quite a well-known example in, in Fiji. I'd say it's been an effective because it's been community-led, it's been really consultative. They've thought about relocation in quite a broad term, so not just about moving people and houses, but also ensuring opportunities for livelihood, education, access to healthcare services. So it's been, you know, a really broad... Um, carefully thought through relocation. Um, but the challenge now is that they've I identified um, 48 villages that potentially need relocation urgently and up to 800 villages that will require relocation at, at some point. 
um, and it's an expensive enterprise. So how that's going to occur, where the resources are going to come from, when it's going to occur is a real um, point of debate and challenge in Fiji at the moment. One of your and your co-authors' suggestions for dealing with climate displacement in the Pacific related to freeing up the mobility of labour. Mm-hmm. Um, would you be able to talk a little bit about that suggestion? Yeah. Um, so I think the overriding kind of iconic view of the Pacific Islands has been that sea levels are going to rise, um, islands will be flooded and people will be displaced. But that's not necessarily a narrative that people in the Pacific Islands agree with or certainly not one that they would hope to see as their environmental future. So for people living in sites of environmental risk, there are different kind of possibilities and potential futures that you might hope for. One would be, well, how can we adapt so that we can stay in the Pacific Islands and deal with climate risks and adapt to climate risks um, as, as they emerge? The other might be, well, we don't want to leave, but perhaps there's some benefit to being able to access other migration and mobility pathways so that, for example, if you come to Australia through the seasonal worker program or through skilled migration programs, that might provide opportunity for diversifying livelihood sources, for increasing income sources and providing remittances back home, which can then enable you to adapt in the Pacific to the climate risks that you're experiencing, whether that be you know, developing alternative water sources, building seawalls, um, um, changing uh, the construction of houses. So it's not necessarily a pathway of enabling you to move away from a site of risk, but accessing those kind of labour pathways might enable you to then adapt better back in your, the places that you live. Um, so I know the Australian government has talked a little bit about, well, we, you know, Pacific Islanders can adapt by leaving and coming to Australia through labour migrant schemes. But I would argue the flip is also true, that those labour schemes aren't seen as a way to exit the Pacific Islands, but as a way to be able to continue to invest and adapt um, in sites where you feel like you belong. Yeah, I suppose you just, yeah, with like that, that discourse, I suppose you try to be careful to avoid sounding like... Um, was it Deputy Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormack when he was kind of slammed for that quote about saying that Pacific Islanders would continue to survive because many of their workers come here and pick our fruit? That's right. Um, so, I mean, you, it really, it's, it's, it's almost the opposite, that, um, that picking fruit through, say, a seasonal worker program isn't a way to escape the Pacific Islands. It's a way to get livelihood sources, access money, access skills that then you can take back to the Pacific Islands, invest in and enable you to adapt better so that you can remain in the Pacific Islands. And I would certainly say that there's, there are people in sites of climatic vulnerability aren't looking for policy solutions that will enable them to leave. The focus is still on how we want to remain, um, which means there needs to be extremely strong measures for mitigation. We need to move you know, urgently as a moral responsibility and as a climate responsibility to, you know, zero carbon or low carbon or negative carbon futures so that people can remain in the Pacific Islands and in other sites of vulnerability. So that remains a priority, a policy priority position for anyone in a site of vulnerability, and that's a point that's made again and again by Pacific governments. That's where the effort and initiative 
needs to be on climate mitigation. When it comes to climate adaptation, there's a real resistance to the assumption that people can move, that islands will drown and people can leave, whether it be through the seasonal worker program or other migration pathways or through forced displacement. There's still, you know, there is still scope for alternative types of futures that don't involve migration. And, and where displacement is occurring because of climate impacts, then the, the challenge is going to be investing and providing resources and ensuring that they are done early, carefully um, and in a consultative way so that they meet the needs of um, people that are on the move. Good morning. You're listening to Refugee Radio on 3CR. We're listening to an interview with Dr Celia McMichael, Senior Lecturer from the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne, talking about climate migration and climate refugees, although she disagrees with the use of that term. So um, let's um, jump into the third part of the interview. Were there any specific implications of the recent IPCC report on oceans and the cryosphere for climate migration? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was a really interesting and sobering report. I think, you know, we've had a few quite confronting reports come out from the IPCC in the last year or so. So um, one was the 1.5 degree report, which came out about several months ago, which was trying to compare a 1.5 degree world with a two degree world as a as a as I guess as a argument for thinking very carefully about what additional risks and challenges there will be if we allow the world to warm to uh, one point five degrees um, versus two degrees and and that was pretty confronting. Uh, that report said we've basically got twelve years to get on top of climate change before this you know, becomes risks that we really can't manage, become very, you know, difficult for humanity to deal with. So that gave us a 12-year window. Um, even more recently, the a report on oceans and cryosphere has, has come out with updated evidence. And I think what stood out to me was that the science was even more concerning than previous estimates. So to talk about sea level rise, for example, the... the Prior to that report, the the assumption was we'd get one metre of sea level rise um, by the end of this century if we continue with emissions trajectories um, that we're currently on on track to to produce. But the updated Oceans report um, that was recently released has increased that estimate to to, um, 1.1 metres of sea level rise. Um, Now, that's, that's really concerning. I think climate scientists have been very careful not to overestimate um, for fear of that retribution of exaggerating. But now what we're also almost seeing is that very careful, um, robust science. Uh, As new information comes uh, into play, those estimates are almost being found to be too conservative. So 1.1 metres is is a lot uh, that we're looking at for the end of the century. Okay, this is maybe getting a bit less academic, but um, maybe on, you know, personally and as like, you know, a researcher, mm. are you are you concerned, especially considering like, you know, the current sort of border 
policing policies in Europe and in Australia. Are you concerned about a situation in decades to come of greatly increased migration leading to, you know, a sort of exacerbation of, like, violent sort of border policing, Mm. of the world's sort of temperate zones strengthening and and fortifying their borders against large numbers of people? Mm. Um, That's an interesting question. Um, I'm not concerned that climate change is going to lead to hundreds of millions of people clamouring at borders, Um, but I am concerned that the kind of narrative that's being produced around climate change and mobility, including the terms such as climate refugee, is going to contribute to this geopolitical discourse where we're very protective of our borders and we have fears about needing to kind of lock down and support um, more nationalistic endeavours and prevent people from entering our countries. I mean, we've seen that kind of emergence uh, of that discourse in Europe, in North America, um, to some extent in Australia as well. I think if we continue to talk about climate refugees in, in ways that are particularly nuanced and amplify this anxiety about hundreds of millions of people seeking to flood across borders because of climate risk, then that's only going to create this you know, state of fear about the migrant as a threat. The reality is we need to think about climate mobility as something which is going to amplify existing migration flows, which will predominantly be within borders, and something which is going to require, you know, investment of aid, funding, resources, and and importantly, uh, a huge effort to mitigate climate change, to mitigate emissions so that we don't amplify the need for people to move in response to climate risks. That's my main concern, is not that people will move, but how can we actually quickly, rapidly, urgency, urgently reduce um, emissions so that this situation doesn't get out of control? You're listening to Refugee Radio on 3CR. We just heard an interview with Dr. Celia McMichael, a senior lecturer from the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne, talking about climate migration and displacement, which is her primary focus of research. Um, That's all we have time for today. Um, I thought we'd go out with a song. This is Feed My Ancestors by Hiro Kony.